Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Mike Pence makes the debate stage 40,000 donors. Mike Pence, 40,000 donors. Um, that's a, that's impressive. No, I I wasn't, uh, so sure he was going to get there. Wasn't so sure he was going to get there at all. But I think after this week, you have to ask yourself, or after last week, did the indictment of President Trump change fortunes? I don't think it changes Mike Pence's fortunes at all. And I would look at people askew if they thought that it did. Although I can point you to polling. I, I I can stare at it. I can stare at the polling that shows in the national race, Pence is at eight in the Reuters Ipsos, which is August 2nd and August 3rd. And he was seven in the morning consult July 28th through July 30th. Now, in the morning consult poll, Trump was 58%. Then a a few days later, indictment time, he was at 47%. If you're Trump, do you worry? I mean, the other indictments took in a positive direction. This doesn't seem so positive. But if I take a look nationally... Pence is beat, not Pence, I'm sorry. Trump is so beating the living daylights out of Ron DeSantis, it's it's frightening. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669. That is the number, uh, 866-468-8669, Now, that's it, that's it. I've said it once before. Trump is nationally 5357 that's the average of the last seven polls. DeSantis, 15.7. And he's been sliding down since, wait, what day is that? Since June 19th. Uh, no, he peaked June 28th, and he has been on a downtrend for nearly two months, has Ron DeSantis. His highest numbers were in January that had him at 31% to Trump's 44%. And um he 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 never got he never got back. He never got back. But is this his moment? He had a very good week last week did Ron DeSantis. I mean, good television appearances, uh the the accepting of that debate with Gavin Newsom and now there's a question about the debate. Because Newsom wants it to be one-on-one. DeSantis is like, nah, bring in an audience. And I, I've some people have mentioned, wouldn't DeSantis be better at, at one-on-one? Because that way he's not playing to the crowd because he's not so good at playing to the crowd. He's good at like holding a scalpel and beating the crap out of his opponent. That's what he's good at. It would be better for him if he was not one-on-one. It would be better for him. 
if he was just, uh, I mean, it would be better for him if there wasn't a crowd. It would be better for DeSantis if he was one-on-one. But, you know, you, you, that's not the way he wants to go about it. And, yes, I, I remain true that if if you're uh, uh, DeSantis and you're not making the move now, when possibly do you think a move will be made? You already had to do the reboot. You got to get this thing going. I mentioned the New York Times Siena poll in Iowa that has DeSantis at 20. And you're like, yeah, but Trump's at 44. I, I, I agree. I agree. But DeSantis was at 15. So for DeSantis, that's a pretty good look. I take a look at New Hampshire that has a DeSantis. Well, they haven't really done a poll since, uh, since the um, indictment. Because DeSantis' last poll, which was the AG National Research Poll, had him at 11. 11! Now, I could go through and see how many people were in the poll and what the margin of error was and find a reason to discount it. I think certain things we just got to uh, accept. And some of those certain things is that DeSantis had a crappy start to a campaign. He really does have connection issues, and people seem to think uh, that stuff matters. I I don't. Just can you get the job done? Uh, That's it. That's that's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. But I get the fact that I'm not the average voter, right? When I describe things, I I think that they're they're valuable in in that I think if we did this, we'd uh, we'd be better off. But I accept the fact that not everybody's like me. And I accept the fact that you gotta you gotta note where people are and what and what it is that moves them. It's in the same way when I discuss uh, Trump supporters when they discuss loyalty, and I'm like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. I need Trump loyal to me. Trump works for me. I don't even know why this is difficult. That it's difficult for people is mind boggling. Meanwhile, Pence got 40,000 individual donors. On the national, Pence is at 5.1% overall. He is in fourth place behind Ramaswamy. Pence has picked up in the last uh, two polls. And one could assume that that is the indictment. And that is people saying, you know what? He did the job the way he was supposed to. I'm going to support that. That's a, it's a part of the audience, right? It's a part of the, part of the voters. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Um, you have uh, Ramaswamy, as, as I discussed, who's a little bit all over the board in, in those national polls. He's sitting at 6% in the, in the overall and then after uh, uh, Pence becomes Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Uh, I don't know where Nikki Haley is going in this election, and I have not heard thing one from Tim Scott since getting uh, knocked around by Tucker Carlson with that Ukraine answer. And you'll remember when they were discussing Ukraine, I said, you know, Pence is taking a lot of heat. Pence's answer way better than Tim Scott's answer. Yeah. I like Tim Scott. I do. 
But outside of uh, a, a nice step out of the gate, he has not proven he is ready for this election. Neither, in my view, has Nikki Haley, and it's not because she can't answer uh, some questions lovely, some questions miserably. It's that there, she hasn't identified an audience. When Tim Scott got into the race, and Pence was already in the race, if you're looking for that evangelical vote, it would split between those guys. Those guys would be, I should say, fighting for it. They need that evangelical vote to be a base of support that they can then work off of. And right now, Pence has got the upper hand in that. Pence is trailing Haley in Iowa. I actually expect that to change. In New Hampshire, Pence is near the bottom of the pack. It's Tim Scott Who's in third place? Now, here's the problem for Nikki Haley. If I look at Iowa, if I look at Iowa and Tim Scott is in third place, and I look at New Hampshire and Tim Scott is in third place, um, there's no room for Nikki Haley to think that somehow South Carolina is going to save her when the spread between Haley and Scott is only four points. That spread becomes non-existent if Scott actually can show, win, play, show, first, second, third, if he can show in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's huge. That is massive. If that indeed is the way it goes down. Because Ramaswamy is at 5.3% in Iowa. Ramaswamy is at 4.3% in New Hampshire. Ramaswamy is getting beaten by Chris Christie in New Hampshire. Nationally, Chris Christie might as well not exist. In the latest Reuters-Ipsos poll, Chris Christie got zero. Zero in the latest national poll. And then, of course, there's Trump, who is just still beating the daylights out of everyone. On the national side, he's he's at 53.7. In Iowa, he's 44. And in New Hampshire, he's 41.7. South Carolina, should we look? Sure. He's 43.3. The numbers are massive. And yes, three indictments, will there be a fourth? And I still don't have reason to believe. As of yet, nothing, there's no poll that says that Trump's lead can be broken. There's no data point yet that shows this. There's a really interesting poll be prepared. Sorry, I'll be prepared. Thank you. That comes out of the New Hampshire Journal. Uh, it was Newsmax that linked to the story. 62% of Republican primary voters in New Hampshire said they would vote to make Trump president even if he were convicted of a felony. 
They also said 57, 57% said they would vote for Trump even if he were serving time in prison on election day. Are we are we just saying that? Are people just saying that so uh so they'll, they'll they'll drive other candidates crazy? Drive the left crazy? Make everybody is it just getting said to be said? Nah. I don't actually think that's true. I stand by my commentary. That if DeSantis, after all of this, um, can't can't break through, can't get the momentum, I don't see how it's done, not done. What could happen next that would make the Republican voter, not all Republican voters, but the Republican voters say, you know what? You know what? Uh, I I have to choose somebody else. They haven't shown that yet. They haven't shown it. Do I have issues uh, regarding uh, whether I think Trump can win an, a general election? Yeah, I do. But there there is a data conversation that that's worthy of 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 noting. You take a look at the number of votes Trump lost twenty twenty. Don't look at don't look at the electoral college. Take a look at votes and vote totals. And you realize let's say in the state of Michigan it was 150,000 votes. In the state of Pennsylvania, it was less than 100,000 votes. In Georgia, it was less than 20,000 votes. In Arizona, it was less. uh, It it was 10,000 votes. In Nevada, it was 40,000 votes. My point to you is that these numbers are not numbers that one cannot overcome. In Maryland, Biden beat Trump by a million votes. You're not overcoming a million votes. But overcoming 80,000 votes? You can overcome 80,000 votes in Pennsylvania. It is imperative that all of us at all times are completely honest about our about the scenario. The numbers in terms of the states that Trump lost, there is a fair amount of those states that can be won again. And Trump already won Florida. He already won Ohio. the The pickups are not that great. They're not that great. Do I still have concerns about Trump winning a general? Yes, because Trump 2024 is much different than Trump 2020. It just is. But if Republicans don't see that over the next couple weeks, 
they're telling us something. And what they're saying is, yeah, we know the problems. We're ride or die. I don't know how. I mean, look, the election is far off. Things can change. Of course they can. You always leave that caveat open. But son of a gun. Son of a gun. If three indictments don't change the board. If people look at the math, I was just going over and saying, yeah, you can still swing Georgia, you can swing Pennsylvania. Well, then it's going to be a very fascinating election. Not one I might agree with in terms of candidate. But I do what is necessary to get rid of Joe Biden. And this horrific economy and this horrific, horrific approach to governing. That's some of the data. I'll bring you more. I'm Tony Katz. The market's getting punched in the face. I will break this down. Tony Katz, 93 WIBC. Oh, see, that's my main station. I forget where I am sometimes. Tony Katz today. It happens. It happens. What what can I say? Not, Not perfect. Just Trying, trying with everything in me. Uh, This whitewash of the Biden crime family from the USA Today requires your attention. USA Today putting out an article where they discuss all the issues with Hunter Biden. And what do they say? Hunter Biden's foibles provide ammunition for Republicans who want to inflict harm on Joe Biden ahead of 2024 campaign. Foibles. The guy might be taking bribes from Ukraine. The guy sold access to his father. Not the illusion of access. Don't buy into that Dan Goldman lying nonsense. Sold access to daddy. It's a foible? What do you mean it's a foible? What in the world does that mean? Minor indiscretion. What do you mean it's a minor indiscretion? It's a massive scandal. And here's USA Today to tell you, ah, it's just Republicans piling on a poor kid with a drug problem. He's a 50-something-year-old man. And his drug problem is only one of his many, many problems. His drug problem is the reason that he shouldn't be allowed access to the home, to the White House, the home in Rehoboth Beach. How many times was he there with connections to classified information and somehow we're not allowed to know who was visiting? Oh, the Secret Service doesn't know. Sure. Of course they don't. But look how much they'll spin. Foibles. Hunter Biden's foibles. And of course, the headline is trying to slime the president. The president's done a pretty good job of that all by himself. That's the reality. The global recession... Also reality. That story up next. 
I've discussed recession in the U.S. for a good long time. But what we saw today from from Moody's, what we're seeing today from from China, this is about what's happening around the globe and how it's going to affect us at home. Good to have you here. I'm Tony Katz. Dr. Matt Will joins us right now, economist from the University of Indianapolis. Uh, Let me start with the baseline question, because the baseline question is always, always uh, the important one. Is this about United States policy? Is this about global policy that causes Moody's to take a look at regional banks as uh, they, they did? Cutting the ratings on 10 U.S. banks. We're talking about M&T Bank, Pinnacle Bank, BOK Financial, uh, and a host of others. New York Bank of New York Mellon, U.S. Bank Corp, Truist uh, Financial, and downgrading them. Is that based on U.S. economy, or is that, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, based on the global economy? Well, Tony, first of all, the economies are connected, so we really can't separate them. And there's a lot to talk about on the global front, and I hope we get to that. But this downgrade is actually overdue. This should have been happening a few months ago in March when we had the whole meltdown. Um, what happens is these rating agencies, uh, Tony, they're very um, they're very methodical. They're, they're a bunch of accounting nerds, and so they go through their process. They check the numbers. They don't just react when the, the government does something. And so this has been in the works for a while. It's no surprise. What surprised me, uh, Tony, is that the market went down so much when it happened. We knew this was a problem. You and I have been talking about this problem even before SVB and after SVB and ever since then. So this is not news, really. Um, They did it. It's really the the impact of of the local policies, uh, Biden and what we saw Janet Yellen doing. That's really the, what's causing this. But it's been coming for a few months. now. So let's talk a little bit about what we're what we're talking about. SVB is, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. And we saw that go under Signature Bank in New York. And we saw the bailouts happen from the federal government. We saw Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, explain to the world, uh, as she did through that conversation with Senator Lankford of Oklahoma, not everybody gets a bailout. It's really a question of whether or not we like you. I mean, that's what she yeah. said. The Dow was down over 300. Uh, as you and I are talking, down 289. The Nasdaq down 175. But the Moody's downgrade, you say, was expected. Is it Was it expected in the same way the Fitch downgrade was of the U.S. credit or, or U.S. economy? And what is it that economists like you saw that made it expected? Well, Tony, what we saw was the clip that you've p- played many times is when Janet Yellen said, we are not going to bail out regional banks, but we will will bail out those politically connected banks. Then it was just a matter of time until the agencies got their ducks in line and said, OK, this is bad. You knew it was bad. I knew it was bad. Every person watching that exchange between the senator and the Treasury secretary knew it was bad. It just took a while for it to filter through the process. So this it, it, we knew it was happening because of government policy regarding not bailing out and putting more risk on regional banks. Yes, but not everybody uh, says it's bad. This, for example, is Vice President Kamala Harris just today.
So according to the vice president, Kamala Harris, audio was a little difficult there. I apologize. The proof that Bidenomics is working is that uh, inflation uh, has gone down 12 months in a row. Uh, wages are, are I guess, in a, in a nice place. She's, she's got the proof that Bidenomics is solid and doing great. On the same day, Moody's engages a downgrade of banks just a week after Fitch did a downgrade of, of, of credit. Why, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, are you calling the vice president a liar? I didn't call her a liar yet. I'll do it now, though. She's lying. Um, (laughs) Tony, it is laughable that with a straight face that they can say Bidenomics is working. The economy in certain segments is semi-robust in spite of Bidenomics. Inflation is still high, Tony, but it's been dropping for 12 months because Biden pushed it to record levels. I mean, the logic of that. First, let me take it to an obscenely high amount. And then when I pull it down a little bit, then I look great. By the way, Tony, Bidenomics is losing. Jerome Powell is winning. That's why inflation is coming down. Bidenomics is losing because we don't have six million jobs that we had before the pandemic occurred. We still are digging ourselves out of that hole. Biden should thank Powell. Biden should thank Trump and Biden should be thankful that Bidenomics is losing. And all this robustness that we've seen in the stock market has nothing to do with Bidenomics. It has to do with AI and innovation. And hopefully we can talk about Lilly actually in a moment. Well, this we, we can. I, I don't mind. Know. I don't mind getting into a Lilly conversation. But you bring up AI. This is a, you know, kind of fascinating because there's these two things that are happening today that made me say, Wait, we're we're in a place. First, it's that conversation about Moody's, and then it was the Wall Street Journal with a headline about Chinese exports falling at the steepest pace since February of 2020, which is not a signal of, I guess, the manufacturing is taking else taking place elsewhere. It's a signal that people don't have the money to buy things, and so they're not buying the Chinese-made goods. So therefore, they don't have uh, the the exports. And then I, I had sent that to you, and you send me the coolest text I, you have sent in a while. He goes, and you're like, check out this thing from Axios. This is the thing from Axios, Dr. Will. The S&P 500 gains are almost entirely from just five companies. And the chart shows that the top five S&P companies have got a return of 56. 2% compared to the rest of the S&P, which is at 8.9%. Your argument is the market, if it wasn't for five companies who are in the artificial intelligence space, everything would go to crap as quickly as you could say hello. Tony, just look at the chart that you showed. The answer is it is. The market is not exploding. Five stocks are exploding. The genius of the United States economy is not Bidenomics. It's innovation of capitalism. And that's why, you know, these five, and I mentioned Lilly today, because they came out with this revolutionary new drug that shot up their market cap $70 billion. Why? Innovation, Tony. The United States economy is built on innovation. Bidenomics should be thanking innovators, but should be thanking capitalism and thanking Jerome Powell and thanking Donald Trump for the things they did 
to put this economy in a decent position because his policies are moving us in the wrong direction. You see it like you just mentioned with the Chinese economy, which is reducing exports, which means we can't buy stuff because that darn inflation. So. I have, as people have discussed the U.S. economy, well, it's doing better than Europe. It's doing better than this. Europe, we know, is in a recession. They have had two negative quarters of GDP growth. That's the definition of recession, two negative quarters of GDP growth. But I have always dismissed that because no one gives a good holy damn what's happening in France. They care about what's happening uh, in their state, in the United States, if they live in the United States. But there is a level of global connection here when you see this out of China. And I don't mind China's economic downfall, sir. As a matter of just tactic, I'm a big fan of it. I'm in favor of it. The global recession is here and the United States will feel it. We will feel it, Tony. Let me give you one piece of data. 92% of everything you buy was on a shipping container at one point. Think about that. That means it's a global economy. So when Germany, which is the one that's in a recession now, when they're in a recession, that hurts us because you buy things from them. A lot of the electronics and advanced engineering products you buy are from Germany. And so they're in a recession. We're just holding on for dear life. Japan is in a recession. We're holding on for dear life. China is shrinking, which from a strategic standpoint is good. But from an economic standpoint, that's going to have a ripple effect around the world. And we see uh, Saudi Arabia reducing the supply of oil so we're more who we're dependent upon so now we're going to hit four dollars a gallon so 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 uh, we've seen gas prices rise by the way so i'm i'm with you there i'm with you on the gas prices go the other way with me for for a second here we see how the european recession affects us we even see, even though we might look forward to the downfall of the Chinese Communist Party on a political uh, level, we understand how exports being lower in China can have an effect on us. So that they aren't make, they're not going to make as many goods, whether you know whether it's their own COVID lockdowns or other things uh, that have have caused that. But how does the Moody's downgrade of these banks? affect them how does the fitch downgrade of basically the u.s economy affect them is that more psychological for americans and not something to panic about or is there a a ripple effect going in the other way towards the rest of the globe well okay there is a ripple effect The, the downgrade for regional banks is a small ripple tony let's not exaggerate its impact but it is a ripple because when banks are downgraded there's a lot of things that could happen to them maybe they have to have higher reserve requirements maybe they have to charge you more on a loan maybe they have to you know have more cash holdings instead of loan holdings maybe they're going to be more cautious and we've seen this tony more cautious in giving loans we you and i talked about that a few weeks ago when the regional banks don't loan as much money. You're not going to have as much inventory. You're not going to have as many cars on the lot. Yeah. This all slows the economy down. That, but that's the, that's the credit crunch conversation. We actually had that last mm-hmm. week. Does the credit... So, so the credit crunch conversation is the belief that the U.S. individual, the U.S. citizen cannot pay back their loans we are you're at about 14 and a half percent of declines on people buying used cars because banks don't believe that those people are able to pay those loans back it's like the highest number it's been since they've been recording uh, that that number um 
this credit crunch where they loan less, the banks are loaning less, and they're going to charge you more in the interest rate for loaning you the money, does that lead to the downgrade? Did one thing precipitate the other? Yes, I call it a flywheel, Tony. One thing happens, leads to the other, leads to the other. Flywheels happen in good directions and bad directions, and that's exactly what's happening here. If your interest rate goes up, Tony, there are some people that can't afford that. If companies need credit and they can't get it, the banks are just offering less credit. Now, I'm not saying it's catastrophic. Like I said, it's a ripple, it's a small ripple, but there's on the margin fewer paybacking of loans, fewer loans being given, more defaults. This is simply the consequence and down and Moody's is recognizing that. And it's a kind of a chicken the egg is Moody's first or, or after the fact. I think it's a little of both. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. OK, so here's where we are. And and we're saying to ourselves that the the global uh, recession is, is here. But for everything we want to talk about, about the U.S. economy, sir, uh, as much as I have said in the past, it feels like recession, looks like recession. The, the, the indicators aren't there for it. Are economists expecting that shoe to drop? If this is what's happening globally, why shouldn't the United States be in that? Or is there something being still generated by America that creates a value that's going to keep us on the positive side on that GDP? You know, Tony, we had this conversation, you and I recently, and and it's kind of a right now it's a flip of a coin. There's a 50 percent chance we're going to go into another recession. There's a 50 percent chance we won't. Um, There's a lot of factors playing into it. The GDP is up. Small, but up. The uh, inflation number is coming out this Thursday and Friday is going to be the unemployment number or, or the other way around. These numbers will be more positive than they were recently. The, the administration is going to crow about the fact that inflation is heading towards normality and that unemployment rate is still low. So there's some positive-ish news out there that says, no, we're not going to have a recession. But then you look at the rest of the world that's already in a recession, and that says, well, maybe we're going to go there, too. We can't fight the rest of the world. So it's a balancing act. And then, Tony, let me throw in this. Let me go back to capitalism. The, the AI companies, you know, NVIDIA's and Alphabet's and Microsoft and, and the Lilies, those companies are dragging the economy up. This is, this is good news. So, again, it's a constant battle. And it, it frustrates me, Tony, that we're battling. The private economy is battling this administration that's trying to create a recession, and they're trying to create growth. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, I uh, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'm Tony Katz. There's a group called PodTrack, P-O-D-T-R-A-C, and they monitor what's going on with podcasts. And they're saying that the leading 20 publishers that they monitor, publishers of podcasts, experienced an average decline of 9% in their unique audience on a month-to-month basis. So in in a comparison to the previous year, the story is at barrettnewsmedia.com. I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. The total listenership for July experienced a 3% decrease, marking the second consecutive month of decline compared to 2022. Um, 
okay, I'm 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 curious as to why. I'm I'm rather curious as to why. For what reason are podcasts down? Everybody you speak to everywhere is like, well, do you have a podcast? Did you show a podcast? You should do a podcast. You know, you need a podcast. I'm like, uh, have we, have we in any way met? Have I, have, have I not, have I not shown you uh, the uh, amount of podcasting that I already do? How much more stuff is there? And the answer is, for me, there's a there's a couple more things because I want to do some more stuff. But just like we see in streaming media, maybe uh, maybe people are full. Maybe they've had enough. There's just nothing more that they want. Maybe we should learn to leave these people alone. It's not that more is more. It's that doing what you do better is more. I think it's a I think it's fascinating. I'm not sure where it takes everything. It's an interesting number, I'm gonna keep an eye on it. This is Tony Katz today.